So this morning, I want to turn our attention to Psalm 13. And as I mentioned, we're going to teach through the topic of suffering. And some of you may find it immediately applicable, um, particularly in the fact that you have to listen to me instead of David this morning. So sorry about that. Um, But some lessons, you know, some lessons just teach themselves. But in all seriousness, uh, some of you may have large trials in your life already, even at a young age, and others might just have a pretty easy life so far. And really, one of the goals of a godly parent uh, is to make a strong, stable, peaceful home for their children, where they don't have to be hardened to any kind of intense suffering at an early age. And praise the Lord if you've been able to have a life relatively free from a lot of suffering. The one thing I can assure you is that suffering is inevitable in everyone's life, and I would say it's inevitable especially in the life of a believer. Whether it comes in the form of losing loved ones, broken relationships, physical pain, or something else, suffering will come at different times in your life. And one of the most important things you can do even right now in this stage of your life is to prepare for suffering ahead of time before you're in the middle of the storm so that you're ready to honor God the entire way through and avoid the sinful pitfalls of being surprised when when bad things happen. And as Pastor Steve says, often suffering is a teacher of a strong prayer life. Without trials and difficulties, we would never be able to experience the need to desperately seek the Lord in humility and also receive the absolute joy that comes with finding the peace that uh, can give joy that, uh, that surpasses all understanding. And so with the intent to honor the Lord by preparing ourselves to be obedient in all circumstances, I want to direct our thoughts now to Scripture and what it has to say about suffering in the life of a Christian. And in a moment, we'll look at Psalm 13 and David's process of praying through suffering But by way of introduction, I thought it might be helpful first to understand what God's purpose is for suffering in the life of a believer. Because when suffering and devastation strike, many people just want to know why it's happening to them in the first place. And it's not until we know and trust God's goodness and purpose for why it happens that we can rightly and and fully trust and obey his instructions on how to then deal with the suffering. So it's important to understand that God does not simply allow suffering in the life of a Christian. He actually causes it to happen for his glory and for our good, which is an act of total sovereignty on his part. So I want to take a look at 10 reasons why God causes suffering in the life of a believing Christian. And for sake of time, I won't go into detail on all 10, but they are very clear from Scripture. This is to get our minds thinking biblically about the subject of suffering before we end up getting to chapter 13 of Psalms. The first reason that God causes suffering in the life of a believer is because it produces endurance. James 1, 2-4 says, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. When an athlete trains for a marathon, they go through grueling training in order to build up the stamina to last the entire race. Now, how does this apply to the Christian life? The trials in our life build trust in our Lord, and they grow our thankfulness to the Lord, and they fill us with awe to the God that actually brings these trials. And trials aren't worthless for the Christian. They're not something that we simply need to endure or survive. James tells us to consider them as joy. Don't complain about God intruding on your life by bringing trials into it. Instead, praise Him for helping us to be obedient to Him. Suffering produces endurance. And the second reason God causes suffering in the life of a believer is to produce completeness. We get this from the same passage in James 1, that the perfect result of endurance is completeness. This is not the idea of being perfectly sinless, at least not in this lifetime. It's the idea of rounding out the Christian life. That a believer that cannot endure trials and suffering isn't living in complete obedience to God and to Scripture. 
How can you be obedient without endurance? Suffering produces endurance to make you a more obedient and complete Christian. And third, God causes suffering to produce hope. Romans 5, 3-5 says that tribulations bring about hope. It agrees with James 1 that suffering brings about perseverance or endurance, which then brings about character or that completeness that we were talking about. But then Paul adds hope to the product of suffering. And this hope comes from the love that God pours into our hearts. And we have a hope that nobody else has. He has already saved us from death and hell. So then the question is, what can't he save us from? Our hope is eternal salvation and reward. And the trials remind us of our hope, and they serve to help us live out that hope. Fourth, God causes suffering to produce assurance of salvation. Matthew 5.10 is very clear about this. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now there's a caveat to this insurance, assurance that there is no blessing if you're being persecuted for being arrogant or rude. Uh, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And this agrees with 1 Peter 3, which says that the same thing, and it adds in verse 17 that suffering for doing right is actually sometimes God's will. Suffering for doing right brings about assurance of salvation. And fifth, suffering also brings about assurance of reward. As if heaven wasn't enough of a reward for us, Matthew 5, 11 through 12 goes on to say that we have additional reward to look forward to. And we have to endure slander and mistreatment from others for standing for the truth. And this ought to motivate us and even more to endure suffering with joy. We are storing up reward in our heaven. And reason number six that God causes suffering to produce humility. Uh, consider Second Corinthians twelve seven through ten, and Paul says, "To keep me from exalting myself, there has given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself." Did you notice Paul's explanation for why suffering was given? He said it twice right there. To make me not exalt myself, God gave me suffering so that I wouldn't exalt myself. So what is Paul's reaction? I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with persecutions, with hardships for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He doesn't mourn the fact that his life has been made harder. He responds with praise that God is actually glorified and that he is not glorified. Sometimes God brings about suffering for our humility. And the seventh reason that God might cause suffering is to teach us contentment. When God brings about suffering in our lives, he teaches us to be content with what we do have, not with just what we could have. Suffering refocuses our priorities on God's goodness and blessings instead of our own selfish desires. Philippians 4, Paul says that he has learned the secret of being filled and with going hungry, of having abundance and suffering need. And what is it? That he can do all things through Christ's power. What is he saying? That Paul's success in life, and particularly here in ministry, has never been about his own ability to provide for himself. God is always the one that provides the strength and the resources needed to accomplish his will. So whether you're poor or wealthy, God has provided a way for you to obey and to serve him. And it may look differently for different people in different circumstances, but God determines and provides all that you need in order to be obedient to him. Reason number eight that God might bring about suffering is to prove his power and goodness. Sometimes we simply just can't understand why God might be bringing about suffering into our lives. There's no rhyme or reason that we can figure out. 
And this is very much the case for Job in the Old Testament. He was obedient. He was a model believer in Yahweh. And for reasons unknown to Job, God decided to make an example out of him. We're never explicitly given an explanation for Job's suffering, but we do see that Job's suffering served to prove the power and the goodness of God. He gave Job, a fallen and a sinful human, the endurance and the faith needed to persevere through what otherwise would be unbearable suffering without the power of God keeping him faithful. Now, we're responsible to persevere in our own faith. We know that. But God also gave us a promise that no one will ever snatch us out of God's hand. Paul also says in Philippians 1, 6, that the one who began a good work in you will be faithful uh, to perfect it until the day of Christ. So when suffering comes into your life for what appears to be no good reason, know that God will still get the glory in showing his power and goodness by keeping his children faithful to him through it all. The ninth reason for suffering is really important for us to actually recognize and to watch out for. Because sometimes God brings suffering into our lives to discipline us. Hebrews 12 begins by comparing us with Jesus, who resisted suffering and hostility from the world perfectly, and explains that we require discipline from God to make us more like our perfect example. Hebrews 12, 5-8 says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he flogs every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. He continues to say that discipline isn't joyful in the moment, but it produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness. We need to pay attention to our suffering because if it's for discipline, then it's being sent to make us more righteous like Christ. Discipline is necessary to become more righteous. So, so far we've looked at suffering being sent for our endurance, for our completeness, our hope, assurance of salvation, assurance of reward, humility, contentment, proof of God's power and goodness, discipline, and finally, as kind of an umbrella for everything else to fall under, we see that suffering is caused by God for our good. Romans 8.28, Paul speaking specifically about believing Christians here who have the Holy Spirit interceding on, on their behalf when they pray. And he says that all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. Now, why is it important that we understand this? Because it can be very tempting when suffering comes into our lives to simply just blame it on the devil or to write off suffering as something that should never have happened to us in the first place. What is the good that God does for us in suffering? Because James says, remember, that we can consider it all joy when we experience trials of various kinds. Romans 5.3 says we boast in our afflictions knowing that they bring about perseverance, proven character, and hope. 2 Corinthians 12.9, most gladly, therefore, I will, re- I will rather boast in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And 1 Peter 4.13 says, But to the degree that you are sharing the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. Notice the reasons for rejoicing and boasting. It is for our own good, so that we can glorify the Lord in ways that we could not glorify him without suffering. We can glorify the Lord in ways we could not glorify him without suffering. And so now we have a nice solid foundation upon which to build our understanding of Psalm 13. So let's go to Psalm 13. 
And Psalm 13 is considered perhaps the most perfect lament psalm in Scripture because it includes all the four major pieces of a lament psalm. It includes the lament, obviously, needed in a lament psalm. It includes a petition to God, a confession of trust, and a vow to praise God. And we're not given a specific event during which this psalm was written. We know that David had many times throughout his life and throughout his kingship that he was threatened by his enemies and he would have been desperate for the Lord's help. But here we actually get a clue regarding the intent of this particular psalm. Notice the superscription of Psalm 13 at the very beginning. It says, for the choir director. The purpose of the psalm was not just to record a specific event in time in David's reaction to that event. It was to record the process of praying through suffering so that when the people of Israel sang and memorized this psalm, they would have a righteous and a biblical response through their own suffering. After all, the king of Israel was not just supposed to be a leader for the economy and a leader for the military. Although those were important, he was primarily supposed to be a spiritual leader for the people. He was supposed to be to model what a righteous and a godly man looked like. He was supposed to represent godliness to his people. And he was supposed to give the people comfort that with an obedient king, God's blessing would be upon the whole nation. So, David's response is not just for his own personal benefit here. A nation is depending on his faithfulness. So, for Israel to have their king's response to suffering in their hymnal, as it were, they would now be well-equipped to endure trials and suffering of their own in a way that is effective, in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. And that's the intent for us as well today. Now that we understand what the Bible says about why God brings about suffering, Now we grasp how to endure the suffering in a righteous way that brings glory to God, as we mentioned a minute ago. And the how is really very straightforward. We endure suffering in prayer. And Psalm 13 outlines four steps to praying through suffering. And first, I want to read through Psalm 13. It's only six verses. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Our four steps to pray through suffering come from the very structure of the psalm. Verses 1 through 2, we have a lament. Verses 3 through 4, petition. The first part of verse 5, 5a, is confession of trust. And in verses 5b through 6 is vow to praise. As we walk through these steps, I want you to notice, and I want you to pay attention to the progression that happens along the way. The progression of David's thoughts and emotions from desperation and lament to trust and confidence and finally resulting in praise to the Lord. It's a biblical roadmap from lament to praise, from suffering to joy, from desperation to satisfaction. So we'll begin with the first two verses of Psalm 13, which is the lament portion. Step one in praying through suffering is to lament, to cry out to the Lord. David's sorrow was surrounding him from every direction, upward, inward, and outward. We see in verse 1, it's upward. How long will you forget me? How long will you hide your face from me? It's inward in verse 2, the first part. How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? 
and its outward. How long will my enemy be exalted over me? There appears to be nowhere to take comfort. And everything in life seems to be going wrong in this moment. And it appears as if it's been this way for a while. David's been praying, but God appears to not be answering David. He's not been given any instruction, any guidance, which leaves David to look to his own soul to find counsel and to find comfort. But what does David find in his own soul? Find sorrow. Now, does Scripture give guidance on how to be obedient and to stay in the will of God? Yes, it does, but it doesn't always give us specific step-by-step instructions for everything to do next. David's praying to God, but he doesn't seem here to be repenting of any sin that would be bringing about discipline, but he's asking for wisdom and guidance to navigate what looks like a life-threatening situation, but he's receiving no answer from God. God isn't making the solution clear. David is obviously no help to himself. His enemies are now exalting over him, over him because he is void of any answers or any solutions of himself. So now we ask the question, what do we do when all that's left are question marks? And it doesn't seem like God is answering. The answer is, David is doing it. He's crying out to the Lord. He's casting his, his anxieties and burdens on the Lord. David speaks of this as well in Psalm 55. Cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. David is taking the first step of praying through suffering. He is pouring out his lament to God. He is crying out to God. And do you realize that we have the same instructions given to us in the New Testament as well? 1 Peter 5, 7 references Psalm 55. And in verse 6, it says, speaking of being humble and enduring suffering, Peter says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. God will bring about suffering in your life. And when that happens, humble yourself under God and cast your anxieties on him when they come. Because being anxious is actually a sin. Jesus gives a command in Matthew 6, do not worry, do not be anxious. And why is that? Because if you're serving a God, uh, if you're serving God instead of wealth, then he will provide everything that you need for your service to him. We saw that earlier in Philippians 4, looking at suffering, uh, bringing about contentment. What was the secret to contentment in all circumstances? That I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. God gives us all that we need to serve him. So what are the practical steps to that? Philippians 4, 6-7 through 7 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. Do not let the stresses of life that would cause you to be anxious keep you in a state of anxiety. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So as we go back to David in Psalm 13, what is he doing when anxieties are surrounding him from every side? He prays, he pours out his cares and anxieties on the Lord, he laments, he cries out to the Lord. But he doesn't stop there. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and petition. David quickly moves to the second step of praying through suffering. He petitions the Lord in verses 3 to 4. And notice again the pattern of upward, inward, and outward. Uh, The upward, he says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. The inward, enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. And outward, my enemy will say, I have overcome him. My adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. He gives the Lord three petitions. Consider me, answer me, and enlighten my eyes. The first one, consider me. Pay attention to me, Lord. See what my situation is, and please don't forget me. 
This is closely related to his lament that the Lord has not been responding to him. And also notice this. Was David just lamenting that the Lord was not responding to him? And what is he still doing now? He's still praying. And that doesn't make any worldly sense to continue praying to a God that doesn't listen to you or answer you. But David has faith that the Lord will respond. So he petitions, consider me. Answer me, he says. Consider me, but also please do something as well. Don't just hear me, but respond. David is showing faith by praying, but he's also showing faith by petitioning the Lord to answer now. And third, he says, enlighten my eyes. And while he has just spoken about being left to his own counsel, uh, in effect needing illumination, that's probably not what he's talking about here. The petition comes in the context of David's impending death if God does not respond. So it's probably referring to the enlightening of eyes that we see in 1 Samuel when Jonathan ate of the honey and his eyes were enlightened. He got strength and energy again from his famished state. David needs an answer from the Lord and he needs the Lord to sustain him or else there's a good chance he might actually physically die. So David petitions the Lord three times and he also gives three reasons for the Lord to respond. These reasons correspond with the upward, inward, and outward that we were just talking about. First, he says, consider and answer me, Yahweh, my God. David uses the covenantal name of God, Yahweh, and he calls him my God. Why is that so important? Where else do we see this kind of language? Genesis 17, 7, God's making a covenant with Abraham, promising to make nations and kings from him. And in verse 7, he says, he will establish a covenant between himself and Abraham, And he will be God to him and his descendants after him, which would include David. Exodus 6, 7, when God is getting ready to deliver the people of Israel out of Egypt, he says to Moses, I will take you for my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And what did God do after delivering Israel from the Egyptians? He made a covenant with them, ensuring that he alone was their God and that they would be his people. And what is David leaning on to persuade, and to persuade God to consider and answer him? That you are my God and I am your people. God has made a covenant with David and with the people of Israel to protect and prosper them. And David is holding God to that promise. He gives a second reason. Enlighten my eyes or I will sleep the sleep of death. And this is probably not an exaggeration by any means. If God didn't intervene quickly then David would die and the throne would be empty and probably conquered by his enemies. Which introduces the third reason, that my enemies will overcome me and rejoice. Notice David is using scripture again to persuade Yahweh to take action. If God did not intervene, then David would die and his enemies would have victory over him. But why should God not allow this to happen? Because he promised in 2 Samuel 7 that he would make a great name for David. Not only would David be mocked for his defeat, But God would be mocked for not being able or willing to keep David on the throne and prosper his nation, Israel. So David petitions the Lord on the basis of saving the reputation of his name and of his glory. And although we haven't been made king of Israel like David, we can still petition the Lord on the basis of his great name. If Jesus said, do not worry about food or clothing because God will provide all that you need, then we petition the Lord on that basis. 
if sadness and depression are hounding you, Scripture says in Philippians 4, 6-7, to pray and petition with thanksgiving, and peace will guard your hearts. Petition the Lord to fulfill that promise and to give you peace as you pray with thanksgiving. Petition the Lord for the sake of His glory to be seen and celebrated. What does that look like in our prayers? That we pray for the salvation of others for the sake of God's glory. We pray for maybe to have a godly marriage someday, to bring God glory, to accomplish His will and His design. And someday you might pray for the ability to provide for your families so that you might be obedient to God and to Him for His glory as He provides. And something even my wife reminds me of so often is that no human ever has or ever will be the ultimate provider for our family. God provides work. He provides business. And He Uh, Yes, we need to be obedient and faithful to work and obey, but God is the ultimate provider for us, and He will be for the rest of your lives. And even for some of you, you might not be the one having a full-time job preparing for your family and providing. But that that still doesn't mean that your parents are the ultimate provider for your family. It's still God working through them to provide for you. You need to trust God with that. David prayed for deliverance. Yes, for his own good and safety, but he petitioned God for the sake of His glory. And what does that look like for us? Pray for what God has promised and what we know is already God's will. Petition the Lord for what you need and what he has promised you already and pray for the sake of his glory. And now we move to the third step of praying through suffering. After crying out to God and petitioning God, express your trust in God. This is the first part of verse 5. In verse 5, David is starting to move away now from his troubles in a sense without exaggerating them, without dwelling on them. And it sounds like he has some good reasons to be concerned, but he moves toward trust. He looks toward trust instead of staring at himself and at his own despair. And he makes a sharp contrast between his troubles and what that means for him. But as for me, he says, he acknowledges the problems, but then he turns away and he reminds himself of the goodness of the Lord. He says, I have trusted And notice the past tense that he uses. I have trusted in your loving kindness. This explains why David continues to pray, even when it seems like the Lord won't answer him. And what is he trusted in? The word here in Hebrew is the hesed. It's more than just love. It's more than just kindness. Like when a boy and a girl meet for the first time and he says, oh, I just love her. It's like, okay. Well, that means a little bit different than a couple that's been married for 50 years. And then he says to his wife, I love you, right? A little bit of a different love. There's stages to this. They have vastly different meanings. There's different levels of this love. The Lord's hesed toward David and toward Israel has been a steadfast love that has endured brutal testing. It was the Lord's hesed that stopped the Lord from destroying Israel when they were worshiping the golden calf after they had just made a covenant together. It was the Lord's Hesed that allowed Israel to come to the promised land after they disobeyed him and doubted him time and time and time again. It was the Lord's Hesed that prevented God from destroying David when he sinned with Bathsheba and effectively murdered her husband Uriah. And it's the Lord's Hesed that David says in Psalm 23, hunts him down. We're familiar with the verse in Psalm 23, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. The word mercy there is this Hesed. The word pursue there means to hunt down and to track down like a soldier that intends to torture or to kill you. The point is that God has said, hunts David down, and David has complete confidence that this is going to continue to be the case. This is why David continues to pray, even when he hasn't heard an answer. 
Now, do we have this ability to trust God's chesed? Romans 5, as we looked at earlier, reminds us that our suffering produces hope. We have peace with God because we have been justified by faith, and now we can boast in the hope of the glory of God, and we can boast in our afflictions, which ultimately produces hope. And what is this hope in? Romans 15 says that we, as Gentile believers, now get to share hope along with Israel. Let's read Romans 15, 7 through 12. Romans 15, 7 through 12. Therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. And for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. And again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. Again, Isaiah says, there shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. We have the same God keeping us with the same love and promising hope. If he has justified us from our sin and given us hope for our future glory, then we can say as well, I have trusted in your loving kindness. And now this trust catapults David into the fourth step of praying through suffering. The fourth step of praying through suffering is promise to praise the Lord. Promise to praise the Lord. David promises to rejoice in the Lord's salvation. The salvation hasn't happened yet, but he is assuming that God will save him. He has prayed in God's will for God's glory, and now he promises now he promises to God that when, not if, but when God saves him, his heart will rejoice in that salvation. He further emphasizes his confidence that the Lord will deliver him by speaking in the past tense. Notice verse 6, I will sing future, because he has dealt bountifully with me. There's a sense here in which David assumes God's deliverance, and also another incentive for the Lord to deliver him. God will not receive praise if David is not delivered. If David isn't delivered, he'll be dead, and no longer able to praise and sing aloud the praises of the Lord. This isn't the idea that David will withhold praise from the Lord in bitterness. He's not threatening the Lord here. He's adding another reason for God to listen to him. He has already petitioned the Lord to save him for his glory, but now he is sweetening the deal a little bit. Imagine a child saying, you should take us to Disneyland, Dad, because you could really use a vacation. And then to kind of tip the scale, says, oh, I'll do chores for an extra, extra chores for a month. And it sounds like a silly illustration, because I don't even think that we can fathom a parent having to be convinced by a child to rescue him from death. It's not as though God is annoyed with David all the time. And he doesn't want to be bothered with David's annoying little life-threatening situations. God loves David. He says that he was, a, he was a man after God's own heart. But God wanted David to learn and to trust him. David learned to depend on God through all of his troubles. His suffering was not caused by God's laziness or God's lack of concern. It was molding David to learn to trust God and God alone. And if you are a child of God, then that means that God loves you and promises to work all things together for your good. When suffering comes, don't fall into the temptation to sin and to become anxious, full of complaints, empty of joy, and discouraging to others. 
use suffering as an opportunity to glorify God and to show hope and joy to the world. When suffering comes, cry out to the Lord. Cast your anxieties and burdens on Him because He cares for you, not because you annoy Him. Don't allow anxiety to become sin in your life. Cry out to the Lord when suffering comes and turn anxiety into joy. Petition the Lord. Pray for God's will to be done for His glory. And how can we pray for God's will to be done if we don't know what God's will is? Study Scripture and learn what God's will is so that you can confidently pray in God's will. Third, express your trust in the Lord. Don't dwell only on your suffering. Rather, turn your thoughts and emotions to trust in the Lord for what He has already promised and what He's already done. And then lastly, promise to praise the Lord. If you have prayed within the Lord's will, then you can have confidence to pray, I will sing to you when this is over. We know from Scripture that the Lord will have dealt bountifully with us, whatever the outcome is. Maybe the Lord provides specifically how you are asking or whatever the specific request is. Maybe He provides in a different way with a different outcome. Maybe He doesn't provide healing. And maybe you think, how is death dealing bountifully with me? But could I quote Paul when he says that to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And actually that to die with, uh, and be with the Lord would actually be very much better. Pray to the Lord to provide you what you need and be ready to praise Him as soon as it is provided. Suffering can be some of the most heart-wrenching anguish that we as humans can ever experience in our lives. But God has given us a roadmap to pray through that suffering and be able to rejoice in trials that do come our way. And it's not just a cute formula that someone thought up. It's the inspired formula from Scripture of praying through suffering as the structure of Psalm 13 shows. And since suffering doesn't come as a scheduled event in most cases, I would encourage you guys to find a place to record just a simple outline that when suffering comes, you cry out to the Lord, you petition the Lord, express your trust in the Lord, and promise to praise the Lord. Because when suffering hits, it typically hits out of nowhere. You don't usually see it coming. And it could be something minor, but it also could be something absolutely tragic. When that happens, sheer panic can set in quickly. And you'll need something simple to turn to. And this short outline of praying through suffering can serve that purpose as kind of an emergency kit for a crisis of pain. And God will be just as faithful to you as we know that he was with the suffering King David. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for giving us your truth and your word and not leaving us to our, ourselves to try and figure out how to live our lives. Um, we would be completely hopeless and lost with no clue on where to go. Uh, we know that we are just simple and oftentimes very stupid sheep that even when you give us your instructions, we often ignore them. Help us to be obedient to you. Help us to do what you tell us to do in the good times, even now as maybe life might be going good for a lot of us. And, and then when the bad times do come, help us to be obedient. Help us to be prepared so that we don't sin by being anxious and by uh, discounting all of the wonderful things that you've already done for us and all the ways that you've already provided for us all the ways that you've cared for us. And even being in this church is such an extra blessing that many of us don't deserve, that we um, get to come to a church and learn so much about you. Help us to take every advantage of that, that we would be ready when temptations come, when suffering comes, that we would be ready in every aspect of our life to praise and glorify you through it, and that through that, you would also get glory, but also that we would bring many others to you as well by seeing our reactions through difficult things that come in life. 
Help us to give us strength when those things come. In Jesus' name, amen.